Section 37 of Volume 1B of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emily. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1B, Section 37, Chapter 17, Part 5. All the writers who have transmitted to us the history of Richard live during the reigns of the Lancastrian princes, and candor requires that we should not give entire credit to the reproaches which they have thrown upon his memory. But after making all proper allowances, he still appears to have been a weak prince, and unfit for government, less for want of natural parts and capacity than of solid judgment and a good education. He was violent in his temper, profuse in his expenses, fond of idle show and magnificence, devoted to favorites, and addicted to pleasure. Passions, all of them most inconsistent with a prudent economy, and consequently dangerous in a limited and mixed government. Had he possessed the talents of gaining, and still more those of overawing, his great barons, he might have escaped all the misfortunes of his reign, and been allowed to carry much further his oppressions over the people, if he really was guilty of any, without their daring to rebel or even to murmur against him. But when the grandees were tempted, by his want of prudence and of vigor, to resist his authority and execute the most violent enterprises upon him, he was naturally led to seek an opportunity of retaliation. Justice was neglected, the lives of the chief nobility were sacrificed, and all these enormities seem to have proceeded less from a settled design of establishing arbitrary power than from the insolence of victory and the necessities of the king's situation. The manners indeed of the age were the chief source of such violence. Laws, which were feebly executed in peaceable times, lost all their authority during public convolutions. Both parties were alike guilty, or if any difference may be remarked between them, we shall find that the authority of the crown, being more legal, was commonly carried, when it prevailed, to less desperate extremities than was that of the aristocracy. On comparing the conduct and events of this reign with those of the preceding, we shall find equal reason to admire Edward and to blame Richard, but the circumstance of opposition surely will not lie in the strict regard paid by the former to national privileges and the neglect of them by the latter. On the contrary, the prince of small abilities, as he felt his want of power, seems to have been more moderate in this respect than the other. Every parliament assembled during the reign of Edward remonstrates against the exertion of some arbitrary prerogative or other. We hear not any complaints of that kind during the reign of Richard, till the assembling of his last parliament, which was summoned by his inveterate enemies, which dethroned him, which framed their complaints during the time of the most furious convolutions, and whose testimony must therefore have, on that account, much less authority with every equitable judge. Both these princes experienced the encroachments of the great upon their authority. Edward, reduced to necessities, was obliged to make an express bargain with his parliament, and to sell some of his prerogatives for present supply. But as they were acquainted with his genius and capacity, they ventured not to demand any exorbitant concessions, or such as were incompatible with regal and sovereign power. The weakness of Richard tempted the Parliament to exhort a commission, which, in a manner, dethroned the prince and transferred the scepter into the hands of the nobility. 
The events of these encroachments were also suitable to the character of each. Edward had no sooner gotten the supply than he departed from the engagements which had induced the Parliament to grant it. He openly told his people that he had but dissembled with them when he seemed to make them these concessions, and he resumed and retained all his prerogatives. But Richard, because he was detected in consulting and deliberating with the judges on the lawfulness of restoring the Constitution, found his barons immediately in arms against him, was deprived of his liberty, saw his favorites, his ministers, his tutor, butchered before his face, or banished and attainted, and was obliged to give way to all this violence. There cannot be a more remarkable contrast between the fortunes of the two princes. It were happy for society, did this contrast always depend on the justice or injustice of the measures which men embrace, and not rather on the different degrees of prudence and vigor with which those measures are supported. There was a sensible decay of ecclesiastical authority during this period. The disgust which the laity had received from the numerous usurpations both of the court of Rome and of their own clergy had very much weaned the kingdom from superstition, and strong symptoms appeared from time to time of a general desire to shake off the bondage of the Roman Church. In the Committee of Eighteen, to whom Richard's last Parliament delegated their whole power, there is not the name of one ecclesiastic to be found, a neglect which is almost without example while the Catholic religion subsisted in England. The aversion entertained against the established church soon found principles and tenets and reasonings by which it could justify and support itself. John Wycliffe, a secular priest, educated at Oxford, began in the latter end of Edward III to spread the doctrine of Reformation by his discourses, sermons, and writings, and he made many disciples amongst men of all ranks and stations. He seems to have been a man of parts and learning, and has the honor of being the first person in Europe that publicly called in question those principles which had universally passed for certain and undisputed during so many ages. Wycliffe himself, as well as his disciples, who received the name of Wycliffeites, or Lollards, was distinguished by a great austerity of life and manners, a circumstance common to almost all those who dogmatize in any new way, both because men who draw to them the attention of the public and expose themselves to the odium of great multitudes are obliged to be very guarded in their conduct, and because few who have a strong propensity to pleasure or business will enter upon so difficult and laborious an undertaking. The doctrines of Wycliffe, being derived from his search into the scriptures and into ecclesiastical antiquity, were nearly the same with those which were propagated by the reformers in the sixteenth century. He only carried some of them further than was done by the more sober part of these reformers. He denied the doctrine of the real presence, the supremacy of the Church of Rome, the merit of monastic vows. He maintained that the scriptures were the sole rule of faith, and that the Church was dependent on the state and should be reformed by it that the clergy ought to possess no estates, that the begging friars were a nuisance and ought not to be supported, that the numerous ceremonies of the church were hurtful to true piety. He asserted that oaths were unlawful, that dominion was founded in grace, that everything was subject to fate and destiny, and that all men were preordained either to eternal salvation or reprobation. From the whole of his doctrines, Wycliffe appears to have been strongly tinctured with enthusiasm, and to have been thereby the better qualified to oppose a church whose chief characteristic is superstition. The propagation of these principles gave great alarm to the clergy, and a bull was issued by Pope Gregory VI for taking Wycliffe into custody and examining into the scope of his opinions. Courtney, 
Bishop of London, cited him before his tribunal, but the reformer had now acquired powerful protectors who screened him from the ecclesiastical jurisdiction. The Duke of Lancaster, who then governed the kingdom, encouraged the principles of Wycliffe, and he made no scruple, as well as Lord Piercy, the Marechal, to appear openly in court with him in order to give him countenance upon his trial. He even insisted that Wycliffe should sit in the bishop's presence while his principles were examined. Courtney exclaimed against the insult. The Londoners, thinking their prelate affronted, attacked the Duke and Marechal, who escaped from their hands with some difficulty. And the populace soon after broke into the houses of both these noblemen, threatened their persons, and plundered their goods. The Bishop of London had the merit of appeasing their fury and resentment. The Duke of Lancaster, however, still continued his protection to Wycliffe during the minority of Richard, and the principles of that reformer had so far propagated themselves that when the Pope sent to Oxford a new bull against these doctrines, the university deliberated for some time whether they should receive the bull, and they never took any vigorous measures in consequence of the papal orders. Even the populace of London were at length brought to entertain favorable sentiments of this reformer. When he was cited before a synod at Lambeth, they broke into the assembly, and so overawed the prelates, who found both the people and the court against them, that they dismissed him without any further censure. The clergy, we may well believe, were more wanting in power than in inclination to punish this new heresy which struck at all their credit, possessions, and authority. But there was hitherto no law in England by which the secular arm was authorized to support orthodoxy, and the ecclesiastics endeavored to supply the defect by an extraordinary and unwarrantable artifice. In the year 1381, there was an act passed requiring sheriffs to apprehend the preachers of heresy and their abettors. But this statute had been surreptitiously obtained by the clergy, and had the formality of an enrollment without the consent of the commons. In the subsequent session, the lower house complained of the fraud, affirmed that they had no intention to bind themselves to the prelates further than their ancestors had done before them, and required that the pretended statute should be repealed, which was done accordingly. But it is remarkable that notwithstanding this vigilance of the commons, the clergy had so much art and influence, that the repeal was suppressed, and the act, which never had any legal authority, remains to this day upon the statute book, though the clergy still thought proper to keep it in reserve and not proceed to the immediate execution of it. But besides this defect of power in the church, which saved Wycliffe, that reformer himself, notwithstanding his enthusiasm, seems not to have been actuated by the spirit of martyrdom and in all subsequent trials before the prelates he so explained away his doctrine by tortured meanings as to render it quite innocent and inoffensive most of his followers imitated his cautious disposition and saved themselves either by recantations or explanations he died of a palsy in the year thirteen eighty five at his rectory of lutterworth in the county of leicester and the clergy mortified that he should have escaped their vengeance took care, besides assuring the people of his eternal damnation, to represent his last distemper as a visible judgment of heaven upon him for his multiplied heresies and impieties. The proselytes, however, of Wycliffe's opinions still increased in England. Some monkish writers represent one half of the kingdom as infected by those principles. They were carried over to Bohemia by some youth of that nation, who studied at Oxford. 
but though the age seemed strongly disposed to receive them, affairs were not yet fully ripe for this great revolution, and the finishing blow to ecclesiastical power was reserved to a period of more curiosity, literature, and inclination for novelties. Meanwhile, the English Parliament continued to check the clergy and the court of Rome, by more sober and more legal expedients. They enacted anew the statute of provisors, and affixed higher penalties to the transgression of it, which in some instances was even made capital. The court of Rome had fallen upon a new device, which increased their authority over the prelates. The pope, who found that the expedient of arbitrarily depriving them was violent and liable to opposition, attained to the same end by transferring such of them as were obnoxious to poorer sees, and even to nominal sees, in partibus infidelium. It was thus that the Archbishop of York and the bishops of Durham and Chichester, the king's ministers, had been treated after the prevalence of Gloucester's faction. The Bishop of Carlisle met with the same fate after the accession of Henry IV. For the Pope always joined with the prevailing powers when they did not thwart his pretensions. The Parliament in the reign of Richard enacted a law against this abuse, and the king made a general remonstrance to the court of Rome against all those usurpations which he called horrible excesses of that court. It was usual for the church that they might elude the Mortmain Act to make their votaries leave lands in trust to certain persons, under whose name the clergy enjoyed the benefit of bequest. The Parliament also stopped the progress of this abuse. In the seventeenth of the king the commons prayed, that remedy might be had against such religious persons as cause their villains to marry free women inheritable, whereby the estate comes to those religious hands by collusion. This was a new device of the clergy. The papacy was at this time somewhat weakened by a schism, which lasted during forty years, and gave great scandal to the devoted partisans of the Holy See. After the Pope had resided for many years at Avignon, Gregory the Sixth was persuaded to return to Rome, and upon his death, which happened in 1380, the Romans, resolute to fix for the future the seat of the papacy in Italy, besieged the cardinals in the conclave, and compelled them, though they were mostly Frenchmen, to elect Urban the Sixth, an Italian, into that high dignity. The French cardinals, as soon as they recovered their liberty, fled from Rome, and protesting against the forced election, chose Robert, son of the Count of Geneva, who took the name of Clement the Seventh and resided at Avignon. All the kingdoms of Christendom, according to their several interests and inclinations, were divided between these two pontiffs. The court of France adhered to Clement, and was followed by its allies, the King of Castile and the King of Scotland. England, of course, was thrown into the other party, and declared for Urban. Thus the appellation of Clementines and Urbanists distracted Europe for several years, and each party damned the other as schismatics, and as rebels to the true vicar of Christ. But this circumstance, though it weakened the papal authority, had not so great an effect as might naturally be imagined. Though any king could easily at first make his kingdom embrace the party of one pope or the other, or even keep it some time in suspense between them, he could not so easily transfer his obedience at pleasure. The people attached themselves to their own party as to a religious opinion, and conceived an extreme abhorrence to the opposite party, whom they regarded as little better than the Saracens or infidels. Crusades were even undertaken in this quarrel, and the zealous bishop of Norwich in particular led over, in 1382, near 60,000 bigots into Flanders against the Clementines, 
but after losing a great part of his followers, he returned with disgrace into England. Each pope, sensible from this prevailing spirit among the people, that the kingdom which once embraced his cause would always adhere to him, boldly maintained all the pretensions of his see, and stood not much more in awe of the temporal sovereigns than if his authority had not been endangered by a rival. We meet with this preamble to a law enacted at the very beginning of this reign. Whereas divers persons of small garrisons of land or other possessions do make great retinue of people, as well of esquires as of others, in many parts of the realm, giving to them hats and other livery of one suit, by year taking again towards them the value of the same livery, or purchase the double value, by such covenant and assurance, that every of them shall maintain other in all quarrels, be they reasonable or unreasonable, to the great mischief and oppression of the people, etc. This preamble contains a true picture of the state of the kingdom. The laws had been so feebly executed, even during the long, active, and vigilant reign of Edward III, that no subject could trust to their protection. Men openly associated themselves, under the patronage of some great baron, for their mutual defense. They wore public badges, by which their confederacy was distinguished. They supported each other in all quarrels, iniquities, extortions, murders, robberies, and other crimes. Their chief was more their sovereign than the king himself, and their own band was more connected with them than their country. Hence the perpetual turbulence, disorders, factions, and civil wars of those times. Hence the small regard paid to a character or the opinion of the public. Hence the large discretionary prerogatives of the crown, and the danger which might have ensued from the too great limitation of them. If the king had possessed no arbitrary powers, while all the nobles assumed and exercised them, there must have ensued an absolute anarchy in the state. One great mischief attending these confederacies was the extorting from the king pardons for the most enormous crimes. The parliament often endeavored in the last reign to deprive the prince of this prerogative, but in the present they were content with the abridgment of it. They enacted that no pardon for rapes or for murder from malice prepense should be valid unless the crime were particularly specified in it. There were also some other circumstances required for passing any pardon of this kind. An excellent law, but ill-observed, like most laws that thwart the manners of the people and the prevailing customs of the times. It is easy to observe from these voluntary associations among the people that the whole force of the feudal system was in a manner dissolved, and that the English had nearly returned, in that particular, to the same situation in which they stood before the Norman conquest. It was indeed impossible that the system could long subsist under the perpetual revolutions to which landed property is everywhere subject. When the great feudal baronies were first erected, the lord lived in opulence in the midst of his vassals. He was in a situation to protect and cherish and defend them. The quality of patron naturally united itself to that of superior, and these two principles of authority mutually supported each other. But when by the various divisions and mixtures of property a man's superior came to live at a distance from him, and could no longer give him shelter or countenance, the tie gradually became more fictitious than real. New connections from vicinity or other causes were formed. Protection was sought by voluntary services and attachments. The appearance of valor, spirit, abilities in any great man, extended his interest very far, 
and if the sovereign were deficient in these qualities, he was no less, if not more exposed to the usurpations of the aristocracy than even during the vigor of the feudal system. The greatest novelty introduced into the civil government during this reign was the creation of peers by patent. Lord Beauchamp of Holt was the first peer that was advanced to the House of Lords in this manner. The practice of levying benevolences is also first mentioned in the present reign. This prince lived in a more magnificent manner than perhaps any of his predecessors or successors. His household consisted of 10,000 persons. He had 300 in his kitchen, and all the other offices were furnished in proportion. It must be remarked that this enormous train had tables supplied them at the king's expense, according to the mode of that age. Such prodigality was probably the source of many exactions by purveyors, and was one chief reason of the public discontents. End of section 37, chapter 17, part 5. Recording by Emily, Boston, Massachusetts.